Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. In early June, international CNN anchor Christiane Amapour shared some somber news with viewers after returning from a four-week absence. At the age of 63, she's been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Today, I'm here with Dr. Mira Hellman, a board-certified gynecologic oncologist at the John Thur Cancer Center and assistant professor at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Hellman. Kylie, thank you so much for that introduction. It's my pleasure to be here. So I wanted to just talk about ovarian cancer and kind of what Christiane is going through. And to start, what is happening in the body when you say ovarian cancer? So um, we unfortunately have had a few celebrities that have either been diagnosed with ovarian cancer or loosely associated with ovarian cancer. Um, I know some of this came to light um, when um, Angelina Jolie underwent her risk-reducing surgery because she was high risk of developing ovarian cancer. And now, unfortunately, we have this news with Christiana Manpour uh, with her new diagnosis. Ovarian cancer is unfortunately one of those diseases that oftentimes is difficult to diagnose, which as a result, patients end up presenting when it's a little bit more advanced stage and more difficult to treat. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. I I, I was reading that, you know, there really isn't much you can do to, in terms of figuring out if you have ovarian cancer. Uh, diagnosis of ovarian dif- uh, cancer can be difficult to make, be- uh, to make because um, it can masquerade as various things, and the presentation of it are very nonspecific symptoms. Most commonly, we see people present with abdominal bloating, distension, sometimes nausea, bathroom irregularities, so difficulty, um, difficulty going to the bathroom to have a bowel movement. Um, but oftentimes, it's really, really silent until it becomes very obvious. Uh, and the key, I think, in terms of diagnosing ovarian cancer is to be hypervigilant in terms of knowing your body and knowing how your body feels. Now, I'm not going to suggest that everybody who has some bloating because they ate too much pizza the previous day go gets, you know, at evaluated yeah, for ovarian just cancer. that in my head. Right, because <laughs> we get bloated for a million things. Women get bloated when they have their menstrual cycle. People get bloated because they have various uh, food allergies. I mean, there are a lot of things that can cause it, which is why this is so difficult to diagnose. Um, but if someone does have a persistent symptom, such as abdominal bloating or severe abdominal discomfort, I would recommend that they go and be evaluated by their, at least their primary care doctor to make sure that there's nothing underlying um, that is causing the problem. And it may be one of a variety of things. Ovarian cancer probably lowest on the list, um, but certainly can be addressed. And usually the recommendation if these symptoms persist for more than two to three weeks to go and have it evaluated. Oh, that's not a very long amount of time. No, it's not a very long amount of time. But, you know, if it's two weeks and things are getting better and it's almost gone, then probably it doesn't need to be evaluated as emergently as opposed to someone who has something persistent for two to three weeks and it continues to progress and become more and more uncomfortable, then they should go and have that evaluated. That's the general recommendation. 
And so if you were to present as uncomfortable and bloating and, you know, maybe having problems with bowel movements and things like that, should you go to an OBGYN first since it's ovarian-ish? Or should you go to just your primary care? Today, you know, a lot of women, their OBGYN is their primary care. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that either one is fine because a basic workup can be done either by your primary care doctor or your OBGYN. But I think for a lot of women, their OB is their primary care regardless. Yeah, I agree. So what kind of workup does that look like? Well, before I get to the workup, I did want to mention one thing, that although it is difficult to detect ovarian cancer early, We have made significant strides in terms of trying to pinpoint people who are at high risk of developing ovarian cancer. So the reason why I'm bringing that up at this point is because your threshold for working up these symptoms would be different if you know you are at high risk of developing something versus someone in general who is not high risk. Um, Ovarian cancer itself is a rare condition. Um, There's approximately, and this differs from year to year, but approximately 43,000 cases diagnosed annually in the United States. So so it's not the most common thing. The overall lifetime risk is about 1 in 70 over a lifetime, over cumulative years. So it's not a very high-risk disease of developing. So, But if someone has a genetic predisposition or strong family history or something that they know puts them at risk, they would be hypervigilant in terms of being sensitive to these symptoms and maybe presenting to a doctor for an evaluation earlier than someone who is really not high risk or has a low level of suspicion developing this. So would one of the main risk factors be genetics, really? That is actually the one of the very few known risk factors associated with it. Um, depending on which studies you look at and your patient demographics. Um, genetic predisposition can be responsible for five up to, you know, in some countries where it's really high risk, um, a 40% of ovarian cancer. So um, I was just recently reading a study from the Middle East uh, where there's a high rate of um, mutations predisposing to developing ovarian cancer, and it can be up to 40% of ovarian cancers presenting people who have uh, genetic predisposition. So um, it is definitely one of the most established risk factors. Are there any other risk factors that we should be aware of? Um, In terms of developing ovarian cancer, really it's family history and genetics. Um, You know, there have been rumors about various things, but nothing that has been definitively proven to predispose to developing ovarian cancer. And what about, not that men have ovaries, but men being exposed to just ovarian cancer in general, do they have more of a genetic risk factor for other cancers? It's a very interesting uh, point that you bring up. So there actually has been a recent new field that is under investigation that we don't have a lot of data on, um, is in terms of transgender males who do have ovaries. Um, and the question is whether all their exposure, all the exposure that there's to hormones that, that they ha- they're exposed to going through the process of transformation or transitioning, um, whether or not that increases the risk of developing ovarian cancer. Uh, we don't have the answer to that quite uh, as of now, but that's certainly a, a field, a new field that is under investigation. So in terms of saying that men don't have ovaries, that's not, you know, that's, that's not a blanket statement. Um, But getting back to the general population, um, there are genetic predispositions that are related to ovarian cancer, 
or genetic mutations are related to ovarian cancer that can affect men as well. As you stated, they're not going to develop ovarian cancer because they don't have ovaries, um, but they can develop other cancers related to these genetic predispositions. And one of the most common ones that we talk about is the BRCA genes, the BRCA genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. BRCA2 mutations um, specifically are known to cause uh, various cancers in men, um, most specifically breast cancer. Breast cancer in men is extremely rare. Uh, and when when a male is diagnosed with breast cancer, obviously genetic testing is of utmost importance, but BRCA2 is associated with the development of breast cancer in men. Um, it is also associated with the development of uh, prostate cancer, melanoma. Um, so these things that can affect men as well as, well as pancreatic cancer. Um, the BRCA1 gene also can, although much, much lower rate, can be associated with the development of cancers in men as well. So, you know, they're, they're not going to develop ovarian cancer, but these genetic predispositions can these genetic mutations can predispose them to developing other cancers. Yeah, and put them at risk for, for a variety of other cancers. 100%. And taking that even just beyond the patient themselves, they are at risk of transmitting it to their offsprings. Yeah. Um, so it's something very important to note. Definitely. So you mentioned some of the symptoms being, you know, bloating and things like that. At which point does the patient come to see you? That's um, an interesting question. It Obviously, a loaded question. A little bit. Um, so... As a specialist in gynecologic oncology, we see people come to see us on various levels and stages of their diagnosis. Um, some people who are more hypervigilant um, and who um, want to be seen by specialists immediately might come in with even the faintest of symptoms just for reassurance. Um, other people will go to their primaries and have a workup done, and once there's a fairly high level of suspicion, uh, be sent to us for an evaluation. Um, I would say even people who have the genetic predispositions or known mutation increasing their risk of ovarian cancer are oftentimes seen by us as well, and we monitor them and discuss interventions and management uh, before the development of cancer. You, you mentioned you know, management and treatment and things like that. What kind of options do people with ovarian cancer have? There are, interestingly, recently, many more developments related to the treatment of ovarian cancer. When I first started training, ovarian cancer, you know, someone was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, you shook your head and you tried to do what you can and you just felt really bad for everybody. Um, but thankfully, things have progressed significantly since then. So the treatment for ovarian cancer depends on how it presents um, and the stage at which it presents. 75% of people with ovarian cancer still present advanced stage disease, like I mentioned earlier, in stage three or stage four. Um, we'll, we'll focus on that in a minute. People who are fortunate enough to be diagnosed in earlier stages, such as stage one or stage two, uh, either because their gynecologist felt something on exam or they just had, sometimes we have patients present who they were being worked up for something and they happened to find this, it's called an incidental finding. Um, they're lucky enough to be diagnosed early. Um, so people who present with early stage ovarian cancer, and this is really limited to stage one, um, they could be treated with surgery alone. So in general, luckily, ovarian cancer presents in women who are postmenopausal. 
Um, average age, interesting that Christiana Mapport developed it at uh, 63 because that's pretty much bullseye. It's, you know, average age is, uh, you know, late 50s to early 60s. Uh, in terms of developing this, most women have completed childbearing and therefore um, surgical intervention for ovarian cancer includes taking out the uterus, cervix, fallopian tubes, and ovaries. Oh, all of it. All of it. Um, and doing biopsies in various areas of lymph nodes or any area that looks suspicious just to make sure that on a microscopic level, even if it's not obvious, nothing has spread. And as long as it's limited to one ovary, sometimes, not often, but sometimes surgery is enough and no additional treatments are needed. But for most people with ovarian cancer, even a lot of stage one ovarian cancers, additional treatment after surgery is necessary. So in general, aside from those select few that don't need anything in addition, the treatment for ovarian cancer is surgery. The goal of the surgery is twofold and depends on how they present. Um, the major goal of the surgery is obviously to remove the tumor. In addition to that, to remove any other area that appears to be affected by the disease. That's called a debulking procedure. So that includes a hysterectomy um, with removal, as we discussed, of uterus, cervix, tubes, and ovaries, um, an evaluation of the entire, all of the abdominal contents. So we inspect the bowel thoroughly. We inspect behind the stomach, we inspect the upper abdomen, we inspect behind the liver, we inspect behind the spleen. We evaluate all of these areas to make sure that there's no signs of cancer there. And if there is, we remove it if it's surgically feasible to do so. And people who have earlier stage disease where it looks like it's really confined just to this mass, there's nothing anywhere else, um, the surgery can serve as what's called a staging procedure. So when we talk about cancer, sometimes we talk about their stage. What the stage is basically, it just determines the extent of spread of the cancer. Um, that's roughly um, how, uh, what, what it means to stage cancers. Um, and re really it's meant as um, a form of communication between healthcare professionals so we all know what we're talking about in, ter in terms of the patient's disease status. Uh, the reason why I say that is because a stage one in one thing can be a lot worse than a stage four in something else. So you can't transpose stages between different cancers, but leaving it specific to ovarian cancer, um, if it looks like on a basic level, meaning on just CAT scan, and when you get into the abdomen on visual inspection, that the disease is limited to this mass, the surgery becomes what's called a staging procedure. So we do the hysterectomy and we do biopsies of various areas to make sure that nothing else is involved. Sometimes this involves lymph node dissection, sometimes this involves doing biopsies of various areas throughout the abdominal lining. Um, and then what happens is after the surgery, the pathologist will look at everything under the microscope and make sure that even on a microscopic level, nothing else is involved. And that determines the stage of the cancer, which will help determine prognosis, which will help determine tailor treatments and management. So you mentioned treatments and management. Where do, so is it all just chemotherapy or is it something it, else? So it, the field has developed a lot. So it used to be just surgery and chemotherapy, uh, very specific types of chemotherapy um, for, the very, for the most common garden variety of ovarian cancer. And I, I do want to put a disclaimer here that when I'm talking about ovarian cancer, there are different forms of ovarian cancer. I'm talking about what is the most common form, which is an epithelial ovarian cancer. Um, and that's the one people think about most commonly and hear about most commonly. There are other uh, less common types of ovarian cancers where what we're discussing here does not apply to them. So I'm going to exclude those for now because um, 
so just just to be clear the management for ovarian cancer surgery most of the time chemotherapy like i said from we discussed where it's very early stage going back years we looked at something called um, maintenance treatment so what maintenance treatment is is that after you're done with the surgery and after you're done with the chemotherapy we try to keep we try to um, treat with something that will prevent it from recurring. There's no active disease that we're treating. It's really a prevention measure um, to prevent things from recurring. Um, and there have been multiple studies in our history looking at using various agents as maintenance. Um, unfortunately, most of the studies were not positive. Um, but um, there was one large study that looked at something called Avastin or Bevacizumab as a maintenance treatment uh, for people with ovarian cancer, and it did show that um, it did statistically uh, reduce the risk of recurrence, extend the time to recurrence, and improve survival. So um, that was the fir- one of the first. Uh, so it wasn't by a tremendous amount. It was about two and a half months uh, in terms of the actual difference um, to four months, depending on how you slice it. Um, but that was a f- kind of one of the first things that gave us a positive outcomes that was clinically practical um, to help people decrease the risk of their recurrence. Since then, um, there was a a class of medications that came out called PARP inhibitors, um, which you may or may not have heard of, um, but these PARP inhibitors have changed the face of management of ovarian cancer quite significantly, uh, especially for people who have an underlying genetic mutation whether it's a hereditary genetic mutation, which we call a germline mutation, or where it's, whether it's a genetic mutation in the tumor itself called a somatic mutation. Um, and some people who have specific mutations, specifically in the BRCA genes, again, whether that's in their actual genome in their body or it's just in the genetics of the tumor itself, um, and other BRCA-like genes, and there's a whole panel of them um, that act uh, similar to BRCA, which makes people with these mutations very sensitive to these PARP inhibitors. Uh, And there have been multiple trials, um, specifically four major trials, looking at the use of these PARP inhibitors in the maintenance setting uh, to help decrease the risk of ovarian cancer. And across the board, in people who have Um, these genetic predispositions, it has been shown to be beneficial in terms of decreasing the risk of recurrence by a significant amount of time. That's amazing. So that was quite a breakthrough and uh, very positive. And we continue to look at these class of medications to try to uh, utilize them in various ways, whether adding them to the upfront um, treatment while people are getting chemotherapy, um, whether how long to use them for maintenance, et cetera. And there are different, different, medications within this class that are the the management recommendations for them are different that's a little bit beyond the scope uh, of this talk but that's something that really um, was a, a huge breakthrough for us in this field yeah and it gives a lot of hope to those who who may be going through this 100 percent, 100 percent. so how could we lower our risk for possibly getting ovarian cancer we have our bodies our bodies are great there's nothing wrong with them Can we do things to decrease our risk of developing ovarian cancer? So first of all, I do want to point out that ovarian cancer is a rare diagnosis. So your average person walking down the street probably does not need to be as concerned about this as someone who is high risk. The most effective interventions that we have in terms of decreasing the risk of ovarian cancer are in people who have a genetic predisposition. One of the things that we 
have been able to use to decrease the risk of ovarian cancer is what's called ovarian suppression. So we decrease what's called ovulation. Every month or so, a woman ovulates and releases eggs. That is thought on a biological level to be related to the development of ovarian cancer. So suppressing ovulation has been shown to be associated with a decreased risk of ovarian cancer. So prolonged use of oral contraceptives has been shown to decrease the risk of ovarian cancer, specifically in, or the greatest benefit is observed in people who have a genetic predisposition. Now that being said, birth control pills are hormones, and then there's a concern for breast cancer and other things. So this is a discussion that has to be had with your gynecologist or your obstetrician uh, in terms of the utility of this, but in, that is one thing that we have um, to demonstrate that has been shown to decrease overall the risk of developing ovarian cancer. And the traditional teaching of someone who's had multiple pregnancies, thereby having less ovulation, maybe at a lower risk of developing ovarian cancer as well. But again, I'm not gonna suggest that someone go and have 10 kids just to decrease the risk of, having, of developing <laughs> ovarian cancer. These are things that are shown to help, but it's, it's not like an, an active intervention. It's not like someone who has, say, you know, stop smoking, you don't, you know, you decrease your risk of developing lung cancer. We don't have that kind of thing. That's actually interesting that you mentioned that because you almost feel like people who may have have this genetic risk factor might feel like it's almost inevitable that you might not be able to have kids or you might get this disease, but there are so many ways that you can prevent it. And then maybe once you have kids and you're happy, then could you, would you go for a preventative removal of everything? In someone who knows they have a genetic predisposition, they already have a leg up on everybody else because they, ha they, are, they are armed with the knowledge of what they can do to decrease their risks. And there are multiple things depending on where they are in their stage of life that can be done to decrease their risk. So earlier on in life, like we discussed, there is... Um, they may be candidates for taking hormone, I mean, um, birth control pills to suppress ovulation. Um, we do have interventions for early screening in people who still want to have children. Um, and there have been discussions in terms of, and, and is currently actively in practice in terms of a very open discussion with people who have this genetic predisposition in terms of their family planning. So early consultation with a reproductive endocrinologist, consideration for egg freezing or embryo freezing in someone who's not ready to have children. All these things are extremely helpful in family planning and ensuring that someone has the life they dream that they would have uh, working with the diagnosis that they have. Um, and like I said, screening can be offered uh, to people who have a genetic predisposition, but that is a more extensive discussion in terms of risk of benefits. Now, the bottom line is, yes, we do do preventative surgery to decrease the risk of developing ovarian cancer in people who have a predisposition to it. Um, usually the recommendation is, depending on the mutation that they have, for BRCA1, people who have a mutation in the BRCA1 gene, the recommendation is to do risk-reducing surgery age 35 to 40. Um, and the risk-reducing surgery um, usually is including removal of the ovaries and the fallopian tubes. Um, some studies have suggested removing the uterus as well, which is a separate discussion. Um, and in patients who have a BRCA2 mutation, the development of ovarian cancer is a little bit later, so we do say that people can have the preventative surgery a little bit later, maybe age 40, 45 at the upper, completely upper limit of normal. Uh, but some 
someone who has completed childbearing really um, can consider earlier intervention in terms of removal of tubes in the ovaries. Now, that's the general recommendation. Obviously, everything needs to be individualized. Um, and family history really needs to be taken into consideration. So even if someone comes in with a BRCA mutation, but have multiple family members that develop cancers very early on, that guideline may not apply. So that's why I'm saying this really, in terms of interventions, needs to be a very, very thought out, thorough discussion um, with a gynecologist or the gynecologic oncologist with or without a geneticist involved as well. I think that it is great that we, that people are aware. Um, I would say most importantly is people will have to be aware of their bodies and be aware of their family histories. Um, and unfortunately in my practice, I have seen people who are not aware of their family histories or didn't understand the significance of their family histories um, and presented with the same exact cancer that other women in their families had. So I would just urge everybody to really be alert to your family history uh, and present it to your doctor to determine if you need genetic testing um, or further evaluation. And um, there are some people who are of specific subgroups that are known to be high risk, most notably, for, exa uh, for example, Ashkenazi Jewish women who have a very high rate of BRCA mutations and they really should consider having genetic testing across the board and need to discuss this with their OBGYN. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this. Thank you for having me. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.